welcome to the Spiritual Intelligence Podcast, Awakening Your Inner Power with Daniel Martinez-Stahl, where we will explore, discover, and integrate different aspects of our spiritual and human nature so that we can all thrive and live life with more grace and ease instead of struggle. So welcome to the Spiritual Intelligence Podcast. My name is Daniel, and with me today is Bill Pettit. Uh, he is someone that I have been listening to for many years. I've spoken with him on a number of occasions. He is a uh, retired psychiatrist, but I'll let him speak to you more about that. Uh, and he is also one of uh, Sydney Banks' students. Um, he's been in the Three Principles community for you know over 30 years, has a very deep understanding, um, and I love the perspective that he brings to this conversation, given his professional experience um, and his depth of understanding and the relationship between both. So as always, no idea where we're going to go in this conversation. It is uh, led by mind uh, or spirit, depending on which community you're, you're coming from. Um, and um, I will let Bill introduce himself and talk to him about himself, and then we'll go from there. Well, um, yeah, I'm not, I'm, I, I am Bill Pettit. I'm in my 80th year and grateful to still be vertical. Um, I, I think if I had not met Mr. Banks on April Fool's Day, 1983, uh, which is uh, over 38 years ago, I, it's quite likely that I would have. Um, died from some stress, mental stress-related illness uh, in my 50s or at best in my 60s. So I'm very, very grateful to be here. Uh, I did practice psychiatry for many years until about two years ago, and now I'm just a full-time uh, mental health educator, if you will. I do uh, Zoom work um, uh, with people all over, the, literally all over the world. And um, and, and, you know, have been graced to travel and do three principles programs um, in, uh, in a, a great number of countries that I never dreamt. I was actually, Daniel, uh, before the epidemic, um, the pandemic hit, I was um, scheduled to go to North and South Island in New Zealand and then to Perth, Melbourne and, and Sydney in Australia and was was uh, looking forward to that and I haven't taken it off my bucket list yet so uh, it's, I, I've dying to go there too I've, I've yeah. been I've been told that it's beautiful by a number yeah. of friends that have been there yeah and I'm hopeful uh tentatively have plans to um to do a program in Copenhagen and then Oslo and then Stockholm and then uh in Manchester prior to the London conference possibly Germany that people have been asking me, but um, I feel blessed. I mean, I just, I feel blessed. Um, um, and I don't, again, I don't, I'll, you feel free to stop me at any time because when I, I thought maybe it'd be helpful to mention to people a little bit about the circumstances of, or where I was in, April Fool's Day, 1983, when I met Sid. Absolutely. I think that would be wonderful. Okay. Go ahead. Well, I had been in psychiatry for about 10 years. Um, 
I actually started out after medical school in surgery, and uh, after two years of 36 on and 12 off, I put in my uh, my resignation six months early so they could get a replacement in in uh, at a very prestigious Rush University, what's now Rush University in Chicago, where I was in surgery training with hopes of being a heart surgeon, actually. Um, in a way, I'm a heart heart surgeon now, but in a, without the knife, so that's nice. Um, <laughs> and um, so uh, I got so exhausted that I really wasn't kind to people uh, that worked with me or the nurses. I don't know that I was ever unkind to a patient. Um, I think that's the last thing to go, but... Uh, but I knew that I that I didn't like the inner world that I was living in, and and so I was immediately drafted. Uh, Vietnam War was still going on, and I trained for six months, and then um, was a physician for the a squadron of hel- helicopter anti-submarine helicopter pilots for two and a half years, from seventy one to seventy four, and during that time. I was still struggling and going in and out of depression. And but I also started to to see how the state of chronic mental stress affected people's physical well-being and physical and mental well-being. Uh, what they in the stress field they call a an accumulation of allostatic load that moves you from ease to dis-ease to disease. <laughs> To keep things simple, I I love Sid Banks's statement that when the answer is complicated, it's the intellect. Uh, when it's simple, it's the spirit. And uh, so I try to keep that in mind as I go forward. But I ended up, I was uh, chief of psychiatry at the nuclear submarine base in Groton, Connecticut. And I'd been married since a few months before I graduated from medical school in 69. And and frankly, I was immature and I wasn't a very good husband. And uh, I had two small children and I got divorced and I I was feeling pretty lost. And I did a a training called the LifeSpring training, which was some people would be familiar with EST or the forum. And it, it was kind of like, they used to have an ad that Avis was to Hertz um, uh, was number two, and and uh, and LifeSpring was kind of they had a common uh, formation through a man named Alexander Everett from England. But uh, so I ended up going through that program and and let go of enough baggage uh, that I lived more in the present moment and was able to then I went to work for them out of San. San Rafael, California in 1980, with an agreement that I would come back and do a training either in New York or Philadelphia or um, Washington, D.C. Um, uh, once a month, I would do a training on the East Coast and then and then see my two small children for a week. I had a number of friends that would give me a place to stay for a week, and I would take my two small children. And uh, it was during that time uh, in 19, that was 77 to 80, uh, see, it was 80 to 83 that I that I went to San Rafael, worked with LifeSpring. And um, 
I was traveling around the country, even did a training in Tokyo, Japan, and Calgary, Canada, but all, all around the United States. And I heard about this man, George Pransky, who was um, who was a psychologist in Port in Oakland, California at the time, and and that he was being people were coming to him who had felt they were broken and and um, and uh, not much hope of finding a peaceful life, and and more often than not, I I, I heard that he helped them, and remarkably, often quite often quite remarkably. And then my uh, my employer and I had become the national program director after three years with his company. The national pro the owner of our company, who will not be named, um, was silly enough to put an, a thing on the bulletin board that said, "No one who works for this company is allowed to go to Friday evening programs by George Pransky over at uh, University of California Berkeley." <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, I know this was 40 years ago, but still, you know, it's not like it wasn't the Stone Age. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. And um, in the meantime, uh, my secretary was actually seeing him, uh, my administrative assistant. And so I met him on New Year's Day of January 1 of 1983 and started going Friday evenings, of course. And um, and then we met for two hours, or maybe it was after that, because we met for two hours. And I listened to him, Daniel. This was 1983, February, March. Uh, we had a couple of meetings that we had to cancel, one because of a flood <laughs> and one because I had to suddenly go to Calgary, Canada, because one of my uh, new tr fresh trainers was in crisis. And so... Um, but we met in uh, in a little hotel called uh, the Mac Hotel. I remember driving over San Quentin Prison on the way to the Mac Hotel, and I sat there for two hours. Um, and I'm not I'm not brilliant by any means. My I always compare myself to Judy Sedgman, who was my colleague, and I think her IQ is at least fifty points higher than mine. <laughs> but I stumbled and bumbled my way through medical school. And, and so I, I can read and understand the English language. I'm, I'm in awe of people who are bilingual uh, because I'm not. Um, and I sat for two hours listening to George. And if you would have been waiting for me at the coffee shop <laughs> and had heard kind of rumblings and were curious of, and said, Bill, is this really a breakthrough equivalent to Einstein's breakthrough in physics of his three 1905 papers? I think I would have said, Daniel, I think it is. I really think it's that big. Hmm. But I can't. And you would say, oh, talk to me about it. <laughs> well, that was a problem because it has something to do about what people call God and something to do about life, and something to do about how they're connected by something yeah. called divine yeah. thought. <laughs> and, and that's the end of my presentation. <laughs> I can relate with the difficulty of, of explaining and discussing and describing. Okay. And, and stop me at any time if you want to add or, or, yeah. Yeah, no, please continue. So, so then, um, 
George saw that I was interested in, and I spent some time with him and I watched him with clients and, and he knew something that I had never, that I didn't know. He, he would, he, we would, we would have an initial seven people would come in for like a three day executives would come in from Northern California and for a three day program with him and morning and afternoon. And, and he would meet with the person, maybe the first session, maybe for 75 or 90 minutes. And, um, and then he, he, I would say, tell me what you learned. And he'd say, well, you know, I think he's probably, um, probably cheating on his wife. He's, um, he's um, probably doing something illegal at his work. Um, probably, you know, get siphoning off a little money or, or just bending the rules. And, and he, and I think he's struggling at times with suicidal thoughts and that, that, and I'd say, well, George, he didn't, he didn't say anything about any of those things. He'd say, I know. I said, well, then, because inevitably 95% of what he said was would become true as we as we talked to the people he said well i could tell by this the level of consciousness that he was living in by the feeling level that he was living in is and his level of understanding about what's behind life and and how human experience is created but more than that what what the nature of of the creative force behind life is so I, I was curious, and he saw that I was curious. He said, if you really want to know more about this, and this is 38 years ago, right? He said, Sid Banks is coming to uh, San Francisco uh, to do a program on a Friday evening and Saturday and Sunday. And, uh, and it happened to be, it was starting on Friday, April Fool's Day. And um, I said, you know, yeah. I, t- I came home and I told my wife and, and my wife went, you know, I, my wife, Sue was a late wife, Sue, who died in 2000. She, um, I'm sure I know she looked at me and thought, oh, okay, now once again, you know, it was, it was psychodrama. It was, um, you know, the, what is it? Burns, uh, Burns, uh, the child adult, uh, you know, was NLP. It was, it was one. It was this after, and I said, "Well, let's let me see." Oh. So I went and I and I sat there, and uh, oh, by the way, she had come and rejoined me, and we'd gotten back together, but we were struggling again. We probably would have gotten divorced again, had we not, had I not met George and and met Sid, because um, something powerful happened, and as I sat there. Um, that day on April Fool's Day, I was 41 years old. Uh, I'd been in and out of clinical depression for 20 years. Uh, I had 26 and a half years of education. I'd been in psychiatry about 10 years. I really was pretty sure that I was broken and lacking. I had um, depression and alcoholism on both sides of my family. I had one suicide then on one side. Now I have, I have a, a suicide on both sides. Um, and I had seen six different psychiatrists who were good people, caring people, Daniel, caring people. I, I'm not a psychiatrist basher and I never will be because 
These are wonderful people who have dedicated their lives both to find healing for themselves, but also to be healers. And, and they helped me through six different times in my life where when without help, I might well have ended up hospitalized or ended up having to stop my education. But with their assistance, if you will, with their hand in my hand, they led me through those periods to where I did not have to stop my undergraduate, stop my medical school, stop my residency, and was able to continue forward. Um, and so there I was, I'd had 900, eight or 900 lectures on mental illness in my residency in psychiatry and lectures on medications to alleviate the pain of, quote, mental illness. I had had no lectures on mental health, Daniel. Zero. I mean, even as I say that, I don't know about you, but I, I go, how could that be? It's hard to fathom because, like I was saying to you earlier on, I grew up in a in a household with psychology and and psychotherapy, and I've been exposed in the mental health field for years. And when I heard something similar, I kind of thought about it myself, and I went, you know, it's true. I mean, when I was studying psychiatry and psychology in college, there was never any course on mental health. No. And when I became board certified in psychiatry through through a pretty rigorous um, both, I think they I don't think they no longer do the um, the um, we had both the written and the um, live. I had to go to Boston for one and to New York for the other. Uh, and uh, when I got certified uh, in 1978, which is what. 22, 43 years ago in as a board certified psychiatrist, um, I suddenly was designated as a mental health professional. Not as a mental illness professional, which is what I, my entire training and a proper designation would have been to be designated as a mental illness professional. But no, they called me a mental health professional, even though I struggled to, to find even a few hours a day where I was there and, um, and was going in and out of clinical depression. And as I sat there listening to Mr. Banks, and please feel free to stop me at any time, questions. I, I, um, Within 30 minutes, I think, I mean, you know, your memory that long ago, who knows, but it was not that long before something very powerful happened, where I felt at least 250 to 300 pounds of weight off my shoulders, off my chest. Off do you have back. a, do you have a memory of what it was that you heard that shifted that? I don't, I, mm -hmm. I don't, you know, what I remember was just. The, the, here was this man that had, I've told that that was a welder, <laughs> that had a ninth grade education, that had been a welder for 14 years, and at that time, 10 years before that in 1973, had had 
an epiphany experience or whatever you want to call it, a, a peek into the mind of God that that lasted for three days where he was awake, but he he told me later he wasn't hyper. He he just was filled with love and, and a gentle, quiet feeling and and in his eyes the world looked different. His wife looked different. His children looked different. His friends looked different. His job looked different. He was seeing life through a beautiful feeling that he had not been in touch with since he was a very young child and that he had been born illegitimate to a teenage girl in Scotland and raised. He never told the details, but a rather rather uncomfortable and rough early childhood. Um, and had a ninth grade education. So he comes onto the stage and here I am with 26 and a half years of schooling, 10 years in psychiatry. And yet I think, I don't think I was at that point that arrogant about it because I was not happy. I didn't, I wasn't at peace. And so there was a, there was a, con, a, a, a cognitive discongruence or whatever in that here's this man who, at least what I've told, has a very humble beginning with limited education as I know it to be. And yet he's sitting in front of 250 people without any prompter, looking very, very relaxed and talking in a quiet but very powerful and clear manner. And even saying that before he had his experience, his level of anxiety was so much that if you and I and he were talking, he might be able to tolerate the three of us. But if two other people, Joe Bailey and Kathy Casey, who you had before, came came walking up to join us to make five, he said, my anxiety would have gotten so high, I would have had to walk away, excuse myself and walk away. And now he's sitting in front of 400 or 300, 250 people. And I've seen him later sit in front of four, 500, 600, whatever, and sit quietly and with a presence, there was a presence about him. I'd never... I'd never been in the presence of somebody who had the quiet presence that he had. And I think that affected me. And I suspect very early on, it's one of the very first things that, that he says in the Long Beach lectures. And if anybody is listening, I encourage them to go to www.sidbanks.com. Um, and, uh, and 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 go to the the Long Beach lectures, and one of the first things he says is, "Please, please don't believe anything that I say, because if you do, then you're a follower. But it's okay if you listen. If you listen quietly, there's a good chance you're going to hear something, but it's going to be a realization from." within your connection to the divine energy of life inside of you, and you're going to see something. And if you see something from something that I've pointed to with my words, because that's all I can do with my words, is point. And if somebody's pointing with their finger, if you keep looking at their finger, 
you're not going to see what they're pointing to. <laughs> and so if you look beyond my words and you hear something and you see something for yourself, then it's yours. It's not, it's not mine. It's not because you're believing me. And he also very early on said that based on what he saw, our connection to what people call God, um, that, that it's impossible for us to be broken or have anything lacking. You can't, you can't be divine energy in a, in a form and be lacking. <laughs> now, you can have the appearance of that, if there's like like he says in the missing link, if there's insufficient spiritual and psychological understanding, then it will appear that all psyches are not the same or not rooted in universal truth, but in fact they are. And um, so the idea, I'm sure early on he probably pointed to the idea that that we are not broken, we can't be, and that I heard heard something that it wasn't that I believed that because he said it, because frankly, given my education, it was a pretty outlandish statement, you know, that everything that I had been trained in would have said that is total bullshit, and what am I doing sitting here? And everything in society seems to point in that direction as well, which is one of the challenges that that all of us in this community seem to come up, up against is that society has that idea as well. Well, as you know, society is made up of individuals and, and there, is a, there is a level of consciousness that, but that is general, but you also know, you know you've met a lot of people in the last 20 years that there, there's a, you know, I think of Martin Luther, I mean, I'm getting away and I'll get back to Sid in a moment, but I think of Martin Luther King's statement, the, and I may not quote it exactly right, but the, the, the arc of morality or the arc of what to me is the arc of consciousness is a long, long arc. It's not a, you know, <laughs> it's a long arc, but it, but it moves towards uh, justice and and I would say it moves towards love and understanding. People would might say how you know recently in the last couple of years I've read Yuval Harry's uh, Sapiens. I don't know if you have and I've read um, I've read uh, Sapolsky's six hundred and seventy page book called Behave uh, from Stanford and I recently on my trip to the Midwest, my 38-day trip, seeing children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and friends from every stage of my life. I listened to uh, Humankind from the, the Bregen from the Netherlands, which is a much more optimistic. But all three of those with incredible hundreds and hundreds of hours of research, if they understood what Mr. Banks understood as far as the principles of you know, I think a lot of their confusion and 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 um, questions would be answered, you know. And and uh, you think that 
back in the year, what, four or five, two or 300, they used to fill 50,000 people into the Colosseum to watch gladiators fight to the death or Christians to be torn apart by the lions. Now, we, we still have mixed martial arts and we have pro football, but we're not packing 50,000 people into a stadium to watch animals tear human beings apart. Even in the 1800s, 200 and some years ago, and I really should look up the number because I forget how many countries there were out of the 195 to 200 countries where slavery was still, including the United States and including UK and Canada even until 1830, that slavery was legalized. There are no countries in the world right now where slavery is legal. Not to say it's not occurring, that there aren't enslaved people with trafficking and whatever, but I'm saying that the arc of morality, the arc of consciousness, the arc of, of love and understanding is moving. And there's a lot of evidence that it's moving. And what I hear you saying is that I think all of us for ourselves and and for the people in as our planet um, you know, is threatened with extinction. Uh, either by nuclear bombs or by, or by what we're doing to the planet, uh, we we want that to move a little quicker than it's moving. <laughs> you, I, know? I, you know, it's. It, it, go ahead. Yeah, I know that I've mentioned this in other episodes as well, um, but there is a there's a lot of talk in the spiritual communities about the evolution of the planet and the evolution of all beings on the planet, including ourselves. And more than once I've thought about the, there's no surprise and there's no coincidence that the message that Sidney Banks brought to this world of the understanding of how life works, the understanding of our psychology, our relationship with uh, our spiritual uh, inner well-being, our inner wisdom, there's no surprise in my mind that that message came out when it has. And I do agree with you that as, an, as a community and as a, a society, we are evolving and we are getting, we are getting better all the time. Um, but I did mention the reference of there's still a prevalent idea in our society that our psychological experience of life is created by our circumstances and our environment and that we respond to those and that those create our well-being or they create our discomfort and what i have learned in the small time that i've been looking in the direction of the three principles and it's it's a message that's shared across a number of different communities as well but within the three principles, uh, an underlying message in the conversation is that it is 100% inside out. And society doesn't seem to support that idea. So that's uh, a challenge that I've had in sharing this with people to kind of help them to see more of the misunderstanding and less of the illusion. 
And so that was kind of my, my comment, which was in reference to something you said. Um, I'm going to come back to that 100% inside out, which is true. But, but there's a little asterisk on that that I'd like to um, at least uh, address later. So I'm going to finish with my experience with Sid. Is that okay? Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, please yeah. do. So I think something happened. Um, I, 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 I left there with hope. Hope got awakened. And by the way, I think it was Roger Mills, but I, I'm sure he, he got it from listening to Sid. I, I realized, Daniel, that anytime you, you or I experience what we would call resistance, it's lack of hope, 100% in my experience, 100% of the time, it's lack of, of, lack of hope. I, I used to, and I used to challenge my compassion for my fellow workers and my, um, my uh, psychiatric nurses when they would say things like, well, you know, um, that person just keeps coming because they don't want to get better. They don't, they, they don't want to get better. And I'd say to myself, you know, that's just not true. There's not a human being that I ever met in my nearly 80 years now that wants to be righteously miserable and die righteously miserable. But there's a lot of people, 100% of the people in my experience want to live at a level of peace vast majority of the time we can't do it perfectly as sid always said and i and i agree with him that if you aim for protection for, for perfection you're going to fail miserably and and be in judgment of yourself a good part of the time but if you continue the journey of which we talked about earlier that there's a there's a um, infinite number of doors of understanding of these three principles and they are universal you know when when Sid came out of his experience and David Banks his son was right there as a 12 year old boy when he said I'm home free after three days of being awake and suddenly he said I'm home free I've conquered this world I've seen what people call God is. He didn't say, I see what God is. I see what people call God is. I've seen what life is. And I've seen how the two are connected. That's what he saw. And that has been translated into, you know, the Pythagorean theorem had, I used to know the number, but it has like 19 or 22 corollaries which are obvious truths, <laughs> but the theorem is the theorem. And I hear people saying a lot of corollaries as if they're what Sid saw. One of the corollaries is that your experience as a product, as a human being, 
we can't have anything other than a thought-created experience by the power of divine thought, or um, we, we couldn't, we can't. We can't have any experience other than a thought-created experience. And I remember even my patients that were diagnosed with schizophrenia would say things like, I would say, you know, what about my hallucinations? And I'd say, you know, your hallucinations are just thoughts with special effects. They are. And I remember how people would, because that's true, so often it had a powerful impact on people. Um, and the diagnoses that we have are just constructs. They're labels on certain levels of, of mental stress. Um, and I started to see that. I started to see that in my own life. That um, I think the first thing I started to see was that that when I got angry, that I was I was like the Wizard of Oz when they pulled back the curtain. It was a little old man with a megaphone. That it was me. It was me that was creating the anger. And. I started to see more, more and more that uh, all I had to do when I lost my mental well-being was to um, be where I was as best as I could. Somebody asked me the other day, what do you do when you're in the midst of a thought thunderstorm? And what came out of my mouth was I just got quiet. And what came out of my mouth was not something that I experiences stored in my brain, Daniel, but it kind of came through me. And what came out of my mouth was in response to what do you do when you're in the midst of a thought thunderstorm? And what came out of my mouth was I be to the best that I can. I get what, where I am or I be where I am. I get present. I don't try to distract myself from my thinking. I don't try to change my thinking. I don't try to, to change the content. I don't do it. I just get present. And, and to, to, to many people, that's too simple because they want to talk about the unconscious. They want to talk about this. And that's fine because most of our experience, we're experiencing unconscious thoughts frequently. But you can tell when you are by, by a change in your feeling. <laughs> we've got a, a foolproof mechanism that we've been given, divine mechanism, divine assistance, universal mind, what I'll call, that lets us know as soon as, as, soon as I lose a lighthearted, loving feeling, I know it's time for me to go to quiet, not to analysis. I love, I love what Woody Allen said in the movie The Sleeper about 30 years ago. He, he had this movie called The Sleeper. And in the movie, he, was, um, he, was a, he woke up after being asleep for 25 years. And, and uh, the first thing he said when he realized, he said, 25 years. Hell, I could have been halfway through my analysis. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel, I had spent 41 years when I didn't know 
what to do going round and round in analysis. And I think it was because I'd always say a little prayer and I'd say, you know, whatever God is, please help me. But the next thing was, I remember being told as a kid that God helps those that help themselves. So I went to my bag of tricks and there was only one bag. There was only one. It was like my son who has a construction company and about $35,000 with worth of tools to build with. It was as if he went going to a construction job and opened up the truck and all there was was a hammer. <laughs> Everything would start looking like a nail, right? Because all I had was analysis for 41 years of my life. I didn't know that, all, that I was truly being guided by divine wisdom. The same divine wisdom that has my lemon tree make lemons already there, even though they're not going to be ready till next, early next March, they're already big and green and they're forming. And that I am a product of that same divine wisdom and energy, divine thought, if you will. But I have the ability to not only be a spectator in this spiritual theater called life, as Mr. Banks says on page six of The Missing Link, when the divine passes from the formless to the form, we as human beings, uh, I love this, so I'm going to be accurate about it. The divine passes from the formless to the form. And as human beings, we are both spectators and participants in this spiritual theater called life. That lemon tree is a participant in this spiritual theater called life. The rocks are the plants. The rocks get messages from the plants of what nutrients they need. And if the rocks have them available, they send them. They send them to the plants. They send it whatever's growing around them. There is, this is one big ball of divine intelligence. Beautiful and incredible to even think about that, isn't it? Uh-huh. It's, I was saying it's beautiful and incredible to even think about that, isn't it? It is. But the difference between what Mr. Banks was trying to point to, I think, is that the difference between us and the lemon tree or even this book, you know, it looks like it's just a book and a bunch of pages, but I'm told by physicists that there's atoms and inside those atoms, there's electrons going three-fourths the speed of light. <laughs> It should, I should have trouble keeping my hands on this book. <laughs> so this book is actually a participant in this spiritual theater called life. Everything is. There's yeah. no separation. And, and so let me read this. The divine passes from, did you have something you wanted to say? I'm sorry, I didn't want to. No, go ahead. No, really? It's okay. No. I, no? Okay. I can wait. The divine passes from the formless to the form. And as human beings, we are both spectators and participants. So we as humans are, are given a personal consciousness, a personal use of divine consciousness, personal use of divine mind, personal use of divine thought, so that we can actually be spectators. We can become aware of what we are. You know, we talked a little about, about reincarnation, which I don't believe, disbelieve, 
or either, but I, I don't I don't resist it. it I it, it makes sense that we may each time around see a little bit more of our divine essence and our connection to the divine to where to where we really can fully appreciate the, uh, being in the presence of that. The great mystics of the world who tried to just see the lemon tree, I don't think has that gift of, of personal consciousness where it can know. It, it maybe can, but I don't know that it does, that it can know that it is divine consciousness. And the other thing is, I don't think the lemon tree has the choice to do this to divine consciousness, to say, I'm not listening. I'm going to listen to my own little thinking, my own lemon thinking today. And we as human beings have that choice. We can, we can innocently, and part of it is that, that lack of awareness that is even available to us, that we are literally being guided every single second of our life. And if people knew that, they would, as Elsie Spittle talks about, they would come more and more closely to a state of mind where they would not have any anxiety or fear or need to prove themselves because they would know that they will be okay no matter what. And, and that's the journey. Some of us might reach that before we die. Some of us don't. But it's about enjoying the journey. And it's about direction. It's not about speed. And a lot of people get into judging their speed in that journey and, and quit enjoying the direction of the journey. <laughs> I tell people, if here in Phoenix, if I want to get to Alaska, I'll do a lot better going 10 miles an hour north than I will 85 miles an hour south. Yeah, very true. It's about direction. Huh? But I'm just going to read the, the second page here. The great mystics of the world who tried to explain such knowledge had no choice but to speak in metaphors, knowing that their words are only a representation of the spiritual wisdom that lies within the consciousness of all human beings. If we're divine energy in a form, how can that, how can that be? There can be no exceptions. And sometimes I, 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 I'm, I'm a little mischievous, Daniel. And I probably from age six to 10, I probably met criteria for oppositional defiant disorder. But the treatment in the late 40s for oppositional defiant disorder was wait till your father gets home. <laughs> that was the treatment program. So all, and my father was a good man. All human psyches are rooted in universal truth and no person's psyche is better than any others. Wow. Only to the degree of the individual's psychological and spiritual understanding does it appear to vary. So let me, it's been a journey. It's been a journey to see that one of the first things I also saw was that we all truly live in separate realities. My late wife and I did not live in the same world. My present wife, Linda, who's a beautiful, incredibly wonderful woman that I met 18 years ago, 
when she came to speak on Valentine's Day at the University, West Virginia University, Grand Rounds on the healing power of unconditional love. And we got met, we were had both been widowed about three years. And uh, 18 years ago, yesterday, we got we got married 18 years ago. But we don't live in the same reality, in the same world. And the difference that I learned that allowed me to have the last 18 years of my life with my late wife and the 18 years with Linda be incrementally closer. And, and I said yesterday, I feel, do I wish I'd known about love to be able to give and receive love as as I do now with my first wife, of course I do. But I'm also grateful that that this journey, this this incremental direction towards more peace, more ability to give and receive love. I'm just I, I live in gratitude, and um, and that that's that's what. But that allows me when we see things differently, which is frequently. And my late wife and I, at first, before we met Sid and, and George, we I didn't know to listen, to try to hear from this person that I love with my whole heart and soul, to hear what their world is like, and to listen. And every time I did, my world got bigger. <laughs> and when I listened from the heart, I remember that she started being able to listen to, to me explain what I was seeing. And life, life stopped being about who was right. And it started being more about living in a, in a feeling of, of mutual respect and love and, and, and being okay with the mystery that we, that we experienced life differently. And it had 0, 0.0 to do with the love that we had for each other. So I want to stop and give you a chance to, I, I'm, I know I've kind of, oh, I, I would like to at one point at sometimes say something about the 100% inside out. Yeah, I, I would like you to, I would like to hear your thoughts too. I mean, what I've been noticing and experiencing myself as I get a, a deeper understanding of life in my own experience is a recognition that even though my experience of life is 100% created by me and through me, I am still responding to my external environment. My external environment still influences and has an influence on the thoughts that are created in my head. The difference comes in with the focus of what I choose to give attention to and where I choose not to. But life is still going to act around me. Life is still real around me. And, I'm, and it's going to influence my experience. But I can always choose to have a different perspective, a higher perspective of that experience. And I'm learning more and more. And I believe that it's very much in line with, with the message that's talked about in the community of the three principles. But I'm learning more and more about how it's very easy for me to get caught up in the content of my thoughts. 
And the more that I understand and I see my experience of life, it makes it easier for me to remain at ease with the consequences and the situations and the circumstances and the events that are happening around me. And I'll give you a perfect example. I am being forced to move out of my will. And I can respond to that with anger and with frustration and with resentment. Or I can simply be at ease with recognizing that my innate well-being, my peace of mind, my state of comfort within myself is not determined by anybody outside of me or anything outside of me. And so I'm able to remain fairly at ease and at peace with the challenges that I am facing in, in this moment. Would you like me to comment? Or no? If you would like to, more than welcome to. Yeah. That must, I would think that that would be um, a welcome um, change from maybe earlier in your life that were, it would seem that things had more control. Um, the one thing I would say for me is that I don't experience choosing um, to do a whole lot of things. Um, and And I, I, and I, I feel like I'm gonna mess this up because I I don't want to sound I don't want to sound um, I, what I want to do is to say that there's even I think there's even more beyond what you're experiencing that's gonna be even gentler and here here's what I mean by that it sounded it, it sounded too intellectual to me, what you're talking, uh, it, it still sounded like a lot of co cognition uh, and choices and decisions. And I'm reminded of, um, of there's a wonderful free program uh, that I'd be love to have you review. And I know you're busy, Daniel, but it's called, uh, it's on YouTube and it's on my website. It's called um, The Missing Link for Veterans. Have you heard of it at all? It's free. No, I have not. It's free. And and Judy Sedgman, who I was with at West Virginia University, but it came to me one time. It seemed like one of those gifts from Universal Mind. And I contacted um, Ofer Meyer from Israel. I don't know if you've ever heard me talk about my 13 days in Israel with Rabbi Haim Levine, working with Israeli soldiers, combat injured soldiers from no, I have not. Lebanon wars. Um, it, Ofer Meyer 
uh, David Hill from the UK and uh, retired um, Marine Major uh, Brad Gallup, who actually works full time now with Wounded Warriors. So three, three soldiers and Judy and myself. Ophir Meyer was in a company of 10. I think it was Lebanon too. And they were they, the Israeli forces, these special forces are in companies of 10. And he was in a special, specialized Israeli force. And they got hit with a rocket attack. And I don't know exactly how many got died immediately, but he was the medic. And then one by one, he tried to save each one of his comrades, you know, fellow company men lives with his left eye hanging out by that little cord that keeps your eye in your socket. And uh, they all died. All nine of them were killed. So I think it's true that 100% of our experience comes from the inside out. I haven't been tortured. I don't spend over eight hours a day getting fresh water from my family. As the last I heard, 16% of the world's population does. I've got running water. I've got an icebox full of food. I live in air conditioning in Phoenix, but I float around in my little pool in the back saying I'm 104 degrees with a cool breeze. I'm suffering here in Phoenix. So I know that it's true because I know Viktor Frankl. If you've ever read Man's Search for Meaning, many hours each day he lived in a beautiful state because he understood something. Uh, Martin Luther King, to some some degree, stood a lot, but despite the way he was treated. Um, Gandhi. We've called people like, and, and I always include Pooh Bear uh, in that group. And um, we've always said people like that, or Ashoka uh, in the Indian, I don't know if you know about Ashoka, but in the Indian, uh, about 300 BC. We, we say that they're exceptions to the rule. And I ask people to entertain that they're not exceptions to the rule, that they're the rule in action. But I also want to make it clear that I haven't been kidnapped and put in human trafficking as a young woman, 12, 13 years old. Um, but at the same time, I know, and that's what allows Judy Sedgman to meet with people like that and to awaken a place within them where they know they are not broken, that their mental well-being hasn't even been scratched or touched by their life experience. So Ophir, I think, brings a special thing to that group because of what he experienced, and the others experienced a lot of had having to do a lot of things in war and experiencing a lot of things in war that that you have to come to grips with those people that have I haven't I haven't had a lieutenant say tie that little twelve year old girl that we found uh, in a Vietnam tie her to a tree and slit her throat 
she might go back to her village and we may lose half of our people. At 18 years old with a rifle, I haven't been told to do that and said, I can't do that. And he said, then fine, I'll shoot you in the back of the head and I'll go do it. I haven't had to deal with things like that. But it doesn't mean that the principles, you know, the, the pr true universal principles are still the way it works. <laughs> and they're, they're pointing to the way that world works. As O'Fair came out of his basement of despair and depression and PTSD, he now, 13 years later, has a degree in psychology. Um, those 27 brothers for life, if you ever, BFL, if you ever want to go on, uh, on the website, they now, those over 1,100 from those 27, and they have a huge building in Tel Aviv um, that has been through benefactors. And he's on a two-year fellowship um, in child and adolescent psychology in Israel. And in the middle of the course, as we're going through, one page at a time, we go through the missing link. It's for free. One page at a time, We one of us takes turns reading one page at a time in the missing link. And then all five of us have an opportunity. We don't all speak after each page. But after each and every page of 142 pages, all five of us have an opportunity to say what, what that page has meant to us in our lives. I've been told by so many people, this has nothing to do with veterans. It has to do with everybody, every human being who's lives life. But O'Fair, halfway through the program, he came one time we, we met whenever we could get all five of us together. And he said, my two friends and I went to Barcelona this past weekend. And we were just to have a nice weekend together there and have some fun. And we didn't, we didn't um, check on the, what was going on in Barcelona. Uh, you know, I thought here, here these ex-Israeli forces didn't do their reconnaissance, if you will, in military terms. You always hate to use, I hate to use military metaphors, but they walked out of the airport in Barcelona and it was a national holiday. And there were fireworks and explosions going on in the air from the fireworks. And you and I talked earlier about the unconscious, right? So that part of the unconscious and the, if you will, the reptilian brain responded to those external things through vision, through et cetera. And it made the very rapid, but oftentimes incorrect. It's not that accurate. That's why policemen, when they're when they're really in a stressed state of mind, if they haven't, someday policemen will live in a in a place of of a different place. And there's been many that have been trained in the principles that they mistake when somebody's trying to show them a handphone, uh, an iPhone. They they see a they see a pistol and they put five bullets in the man's chest, only to have the iPhone fall on the ground. Well, that same that same response to O'Fair had his heart suddenly going 160, his breathing fast and profusely perspiring because he was ready for a rocket attack to try to save the people around him. 
And he said, you know, it's wonderful that I didn't have to do anything. I didn't have to make any decision. My only decision was to sit down <laughs> and not decide on not taking his thoughts seriously or that, you know, he just knew that that was not the time to engage his intellect. All I could, I just sat down as quietly as possible and I let my brain do what it did. And within five minutes, I knew I was having a thought created experience. Within five minutes, I um, heart was normal, my breathing was normal, and I felt a deep level of calm. And I looked up from that experience, I looked up at the fireworks and said, is this cool or what? And they went and had a wonderful weekend in Barcelona. They didn't have to fly back to Tel Aviv. And he didn't have to go into battle with his experience or his thoughts or make any decisions and and then cur end up curling up in a fetal position, mumbling incoherently, they're all dead, they're all dead. I couldn't save them, they're all dead. As he was carted off to the local emergency room in the psychiatric unit. And that's that grain of truth that if people really understand the universality of these principles and their connection to what people call God, there's no experience. They won't be frightened by any experience. I have a question for you that sure. is related to what you've been sharing. And it comes from one of my listeners. Um, the question was around how does this understanding help with the big mental issues like, for example, and they mentioned that one of their family members suffers from very severe uh, bipolar disorder, where she will go into um, episodes where she will disappear from the household and put her life into all kinds of very dangerous uh, situations to then come out of it eventually. Um, but his question was, how does this understanding help situations like that and people like that? I'll be glad to answer, but I, I will encourage, hopefully I can awaken enough hope that they go to Sid's videotapes and to the missing link and, and to even... Have you have you ever heard that series of 13 or 14 one-hour podcasts that I did for um, Elizabeth Olivia, uh, Lovius in the UK? They're also on my website. No, I don't. I'll 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 definitely have the links for it on uh, on the description. The first one, the first one is called "One Cause, One Cure," and the second one is "Stories of Hope." From at that time, about 33, four years. Stories of Hope, Anxiety Disorders. Second one, Stories of Hope, um, Depressive Disorders. Whole hour on Stories of Hope, Bipolar Disorders. Stories of Hope, Schizophrenia and Psychotic Disorders. Stories of Hope, PTSD. Stories of Hope, Addictive Disorders. Stories of Hope, Personality Disorders. And I basically go through my experience of 35 years 
with each one of these. But the answer is very simple. The answer for, first of all, I'm going to say something. I don't know if you've ever heard me read the quote from um, Tom Insull, who was the director of national, the director of the National Institute of Mental Health from 2005 to 2017. Have you ever heard me quote him? I believe I have, yes, but please, he, please go ahead. And and his answer is not the same answer. And I, I certainly he's on my list of people to to send. Have you seen the most recent article that from 22 months of collaboration that we got finally got published? I have not. I know that uh, I believe that Judy was speaking to me about it wanting about it kind of being finalized and in okay. the final stages. Do you want stages. me to send it to you? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And are you okay? Are you okay if I share that with the community oh, as well? Oh yeah, you can share it around the world. I mean, I think, uh, and I'll I'll share one that was in the same journal. On um, there's you know there's three programs for children going around the world. One is iHeart, one is the Spark, and the other is My Guide Inside. Uh, and there's a, there's research and and I'll send you a list of of 25 or 30 um, articles that have been peer reviewed over the years published. Yeah, that would be lovely. Here's what Dr. Tom Insel says. And this is, I, as people listen, as people listen, Daniel, as you said, we're, we're talking like a different world, a different paradigm. It, and, and I don't know if you ever read the structure of scientific revolution by Thomas Kuhn, where he talks about every time there is a structural, a, a scientific revolution uh, and a paradigm shift, it takes about 50 years, generally it has, before the old people die off and enough young people, <laughs> and really, and enough young people see something that they say, I can't believe that people used to think that was true. We are so embedded in this structure. This is 12, 13 years, the National Institute of Mental Health Director, Psychiatrist, MD, Tom Mental. We are so embedded in this structure. We have spent so much time diagnosing mental disorders that we actually believe they are real. This is not me or Sid or but there's no reality. They are just constructs. There's no reality to schizophrenia or depression. We may have to stop using terms like depression and schizophrenia because they are getting in our way and confusing things. Wow. That includes bipolar, that includes OCD. That includes whatever label you want to put there. Whatever we've been doing for five decades, it ain't working. When I look at the numbers, the numbers of suicides, the numbers of disabilities, the mortality data, it's abysmal. And it's not getting any better. All the ways in which we've approached these illnesses 
and with a lot of people working very hard, the outcomes we've got to this point are pretty bleak. My course that I'm going to do called Hope for the Helpers, Less Stress, More Joy, part of, and we're going to use The Enlightened Gardener, which you said was your favorite Zid book. Um, I think part of that inspired that was that in the American Journal of Psychiatry just a few months ago, there was a survey of 2016 American psychiatrists. And they were humble enough to truly, most of them, it sounds like, filled out a, a scale that was given to them, a burnout scale, honestly, so that 78% of 2016 American psychiatrists met criteria for burnout for psychological, spiritual, and physiological burnout. Now, if we had 2016 electricians who reported in the past year that they had life-threatening shocks, electric shocks, we'd say, you know, maybe we have to look at the education of electricians because there's something we're not teaching them or they, they wouldn't be getting shocked like that. Now, it's innocent. It's innocent. Um, but I will send you this because on the back of it, and since then, I've seen that I, there's, there's a research tool that was used for DSM-5, and it had 13, it had 13 um, quote, symptoms. And I woke up one morning while I was teaching a course at a small university, Catholic university, with my wife. Siena Heights University, and I suddenly realized, wow, these are called the exploring the 13 cross-cutting symptoms. I said, this has never been, these are not in, they're not just 13 things, they're related. And I saw that under depression, under mood, three of them were, you, you go from being lighthearted and joyful to dysthymia meaning you don't feel as good as you used to feel. Then you get into a depression where you really are feeling kind of down. And then you feel anger and irritability. And then eventually, if, if you don't have the understanding and you don't hear that these symptoms are love letters from universal mind, a totally beneficent. This three principles is not a religion. But it is a theology, Daniel. It's pointing to a new view of what is behind life. Not judgment, not punishment, but love and understanding. Pure, unadulterated, unconditional love and understanding. If that's true, then that would mean that everything that we experience as a symptom is an attempt by universal mind to have us look in a different direction. And if we don't hear the initial symptoms, they have to make the alarm louder to try to save the person from more and more pain, physically and emotionally. If people don't hear it, they end up where they're, they're totally 
loss of connectedness to self, others, to source. And they're waking up every morning trying to decide whether or not to kill themselves and then whether or not to take anybody with them before they kill themselves, whether to kill any others. And Corey Keyes' research shows that about 30, 15 to 18%, and it's just a survey, but 15 to 18% of people are in the United States across culture, across education, about 18% of the people, about one in six, are what they call thriving. They're lighthearted. They have stress resistance. Things don't bother them generally. But if they do, they have tremendous resilience. 50% are what they call stressed, but okay. Moderate mental well-being. I'm okay, but I'm stressed. My dear friend Dickon Bettinger talks about how prior to seeing the principles, and here's a very educated, bright, loving man, he was having to do four hours a day of meditation to have his anxiety be under control. Wow. Now, is that better than 10 bags of heroin or two quarts of whiskey or having sex with everything that moves or eating and puking? Of course it is. But it also was four hours out of his day that he wasn't available to give and receive love and to be productive and creative in his life. And that leaves 32% of people are languishing in the United States. And the bottom, some percentage of that, you know, have to be the languishing, feeling overwhelmed, waking up overwhelmed every day of their life. Wow. Now, Tom Kelly did a, a, a research thing where he sent out this survey to people a number of years ago. And it's not good research, but it has to be looked at because it. I think he got 194 people in the community, three principles community that had at least nine years of average was nine years exposure to the principles and 88% were thriving, 9% were okay, but stressed and 3% were languishing. If you go to anxiety, if you go down on mood, mania to me is an attempt to save the person's life. When I have had people, once I started to see this, I started asking people who had had hypomanic and manic episodes. And I would say, what is the last thing you remember prior to your panic, to your manic and one was a PhD psychologist that I presented with who was hospitalized for six to eight weeks in, uh, in, the, in the United Kingdom and presented with me at London conference. And I said to the, a number of people uh, that, that when I was working clinically, what was the last thing you remember before you went into your manic episode or your hypomanic episode? And about 75 to 75% of them, some would say, I don't remember. But those that remembered, every one of them said, suicide had become a genuine option. I was thinking more and more about taking my life. Now, when you think of that, the mania, <laughs> if you think of universal mind having to respect our level of consciousness and our free will, 
but trying to save us. I had one man who went into a manic episode and he told me when he came out of it, the last thing he remembers, he was going to kill his wife, who he loved very dearly, his two nine and 11-year-old boys, who he loved very dearly, and then himself to save them from the pain of, pain of life because he felt like he'd failed them economically. So what did, what did his manic episode do? It saved four people's lives. And it got him into, it, it got the cavalry involved. <laughs> and it got him into a safe place in a hospital where he was able to learn the principles, luckily, because he happened to be that I was his doctor. So, so what I would say is that we either live in a level of ease, and then we have at least four different, we've been given by universal mind, at least four different areas of alarm systems that try to get us to look in a different direction, that try to give us to look to silence, to just be quiet, not to try to do anything with our thinking, reframe it, any, no, it's very simple. If you push a cork underwater, if you learn how to let go of the cork, the cork doesn't need the GPS to get back to the surface. What's hereditary is which one of these beneficent, benevolent alarm systems is the most sensitive. For me, it was mood. I went into depressions when I didn't know. For Dickon, it was anxiety. For other people, well, so what are the four alarm systems? One is our mood. If I go from more than 30 minutes a day of stressful thinking, activating the, the, the stress response in the hypothalamic pituitary axis, 30 minutes a day, no problem. 30 minutes to three hours a day, the research shows, and um, that we have incredible neural adaptation that we can probably avoid unless it goes on for years and years, any long-term problems, psychologically or physically. But we will get alarm systems. Divine mind will let us know our, and what's hereditary is which is most sensitive. But everybody's mood will come down some. They will become less lighthearted and more serious, more less lighthearted and loving, and more serious and and um, and discomfort. Their tension level will go from serenity to X degree of anxiety. It can go all the way to if they don't learn or see something to phobias, panic attacks, and even dissociation, and even multiple personalities. The third one is our thinking. Our thinking will move from clear and creative and free access to wisdom to muddled and efforting. And we're losing our keys. For me, I'm losing my keys. I'm losing my phone. I'm losing the TV remote. I'm, I'm cutting myself my razor thinking that suddenly whiskers are growing up here near my eyeball because I'm going too fast and furious and not slow enough. And then in our body, 
one of the first things that goes is people sleep. There, it's sleep is natural, but one of the first thing that goes the alarm system to let us know to go to quiet is sleep, and the other is discomfort. We will start feeling some discomfort somewhere in our body, either from an old injury. I read yesterday that over nine million people in the United States have um, migraines. I passed at least 12 kidney stones, two or three of which I was hospitalized. Those were not early signs. Each one of them, I was probably in at least three to five weeks of stressful thinking for six to eight hours a day. And the kidney stone was finally something that got my attention. But if I don't know that it's a love letter, that it's a benevolent, beneficent message for many people when they start having pain or start having sleep problems, they now think they've got another problem instead of a gift to go to to quiet and 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 the gift of mental well-being, which is innate, trying to come to the surface every moment of our life effortlessly. But if I don't know that, and I didn't for years, I would I would have some physical thing happen. My back would go out, and then I'd say, not only am I having trouble with my wife and people trouble with people at work, now my damn back is going out. Boy, things come in threes. <laughs> I had no no awareness that I was trying that my even the quality of my relationships is another a fifth, if you will, love letter that lets me know to what degree I'm living in a place of, of quiet and moving from fast and furious to calm and curious. Yeah, I love what you've been sharing. And I realize that we've been speaking uh, for quite a bit. I, I would love for you to speak more about this course that you mentioned um, I know that there's a certain audience that it's targeting, but it is open to all and everybody can benefit from it, I'm sure. But I would love for you to speak more about that. Well, thank you, Daniel. Um, I'm going to read a little bit. It's, you know, it's called Hope for the Helpers and, um, and uh, Less Stress, More Joy. And what I realized when I thought of it, that, that, it, that it comes in many forms, parents trying to help their children, <laughs> children trying to help their parents, <laughs> siblings trying to help their brother or sister who's having a difficult time. You, you mentioned this, the man that with his sister who's having manic friends, even strangers that we see that are struggling. And then there's the professional labels, physicians, nurses, first responders, physical therapists, occupational therapists, addiction therapists, mental health therapists, you mentioned your family, you know, family therapist, marriage counselor, psychologist, psychiatrist, and clergy. Very interesting. In the three places where I was in private practice, three parts of the country, within a year, the clergy heard about me and came and asked me to speak to them about stress. Because here these were people with good religious beliefs they were giving wonderful sermons and they had the humility to admit to me. And then they were going home and yelling and screaming at their wife or their children 
or even sometimes striking them or abusing alcohol or doing other things. What is common to all these helpers is the desire to be a healing agent. What is also familiar to many of these caring people is the daily experience of many hours of chronic mental stress. If we do more than three hours a day on any, any length of time, it will start to create what the stress people call allostatic load psychologically and physiologically. And we are likely over time to move. We've moved from ease to disease. And over time, over three hours a day, we're going to move from disease to disease, to whether it's skin diseases or belly diseases or heart diseases or whatever. And it's not, there's no judgment. You know, like I said, there's no, there's no doubt in my mind that I would have been dead a long time ago. Often, too often leading to psychological, spiritual, and physiological burnout. Throughout my five decades of professional life, I found it rather disconcerting that the very people who are attempting to help people have a gentler, more loving life have not found a way to do that to the extent they would like to in their own life. I was certainly one of them, Daniel. I recently published, and I talked about this, 78% meant burnout. Physicians, burnout among physicians is well over 50%. Family caregivers. And the label compassion fatigue is often connected to these statistics. And sadly, by many seen as an inevitable outside-in, as you mentioned, experience from participation in many helping situations and professions. This eight-week program, Help for the Helpers, will posit, let's stress more, that there is a wisdom and understanding within the consciousness of all human beings that brings fresh hope that compassion, caring, and fatigue and burnout are not inevitably associated, that it's not too much compassion that creates burnout. It's a lack of understanding. This program will utilize the wisdom presented in Sidney Banks's 2001 book, The Enlightened Gardener, augmented by my 38-year winding journey, incremental journey exploring the three principles, universal principles of mind, thought, and consciousness, and then I say random incidences, just like it has today, of lighthearted humor have been known to emerge during this journey of incremental insight-based realizations. With each insight, the experience of the external world effortlessly shifts in a more positive direction. The world looks different every time we have an insight and a realization when within. As a result, one's stress resistance is effortlessly increased, effortlessly, not through hard work, not through rituals. As this occurs, the amount of internal distress created in response to life's very real challenges lessens considerably, and one's innate resilience is awakened. This combination brings more joy, less stress, more effectiveness to one's passion for life and as a helper. You know, if I go from, I think sometimes when we talk, it is, it, it is 100% inside out. But what people hear is that means I should never be stressed. But if I go from taking on 95 units of stress for every 100 units of challenge, and I like instead of calling 
difficult things, stressors. I think when we do that, we're giving an innate and inert thing power it does not have. There are real life challenges. And for a good part of my first 41 years of my life, when faced with 100 units of real life challenge, I often created 95 units of stress in response to it. Now, I'm not saying that I don't, and I'm, I, I'm, I won't even, I shouldn't even, but generally, I would say that I probably, compared to what I used to do, probably three to five, generally, units of stress for every 100 units of real-life challenge. As a result, my physiology, my well-being, my state of mind, and it's been very incremental for me. And the key thing for people is to be gentle on themselves in the journey and to be grateful for each little step. If they go from 95% to 91%, that's an incredibly 4% jump decrease taking on. So if we can be gentle and grateful, the journey becomes joyful. That's, that's what this course is going to be around. It's going to be on eight consecutive Wednesdays. It's going to be 11 o'clock on Pacific time. Um, and uh, it's going to um, be two hours on the first and eighth and, and 90 minutes on the second through seventh. Um, it'll be recorded. So if people can't make it live because of their work schedule, they'll be able to listen to it and watch it. I would encourage them to get the, the Enlightened Gardener, uh, which I've heard is more easily available now again. And uh, in paperback, actually, and uh, and uh, I, I think it'll be a joyful um, a journey for people. And when does the course actually start? Starts September 29th. Okay. And if you if you contact Terry, she can send you a whole. It's on our website, but she'll send you anything to make it easy for you, Daniel. So you can just forward it on, and I will forward on the articles that got published recently. Right. And I will send this quote of Ensel's and the little journey of the, um, you know, psychosis. Psychosis is a gift. I have created such a painful world in my head that my only options are suicide or to go to another world. That's what this even, when I said that to this PhD psychologist, in London, he said, absolutely. That's where I was. I was on the verge of suicide. And what it did, I instead went into a psychotic state, into another world. It gave me a, a second chance. So I love what the course is offering. I'm concerned a little bit about the timing of when this episode is going to air and the beginning of the course. I assume that if people show up a week or two later, that it's still easy for them to to join and catch up. Well, they they will have access. Yeah, they'll have access. There'll be there will be people that after this course is over will join it. I mean, this is my third course. The one is on mind body. The other is on uh, realizing, recognizing, realizing, and awakening mental mental well being. Uh, each one of them are available, and people. Uh, oftentimes, even now, are getting them and, you know, housewives that have children and works and they'll maybe watch it 20 minutes at a time. Perfect. So, yeah, 
Yeah, that's perfect. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, so absolutely. So I will share all of this information that that you've uh, that you've spoken about in the description of the episode. Um, and of course, I will include your website uh, as well. But for people that are listening, what would be the website? It's it's www.thedoctorspettit.com, but it's doctors is just DRS. So it's www.the drs doctors pettit p-e-t-t-i-t dot com the doctors pettit.com perfect fabulous the last thing i i encourage you when if you get a chance to read anatomy of an epidemic magic bullets psychiatric drugs and the astonishing rise of mental illness in america it's by a, it's not somebody who's out, out to get psychiatry. He's an award-winning um, investigative journalist who cites journals that show that in undeveloped countries where they can't afford treatment, long-term treatment for schizophrenia, at, after seven and a half years, they have 40 to 45% total cures and this is from the World Health Organization, three studies, because they couldn't believe it. Whereas in the United States and Russia and Europe, where they give people, continue to give people antipsychotics, after seven and a half years, they have a 6% re- full recovery rate. And he, quite, he does that with each and every one. These medicines are, are God also, but they're meant to just allow the person to get quiet enough to be able to listen. Because over time, if they're given over time, the alarm just gets louder and louder because the symptom was a gift. It was a gift trying to, like the like the um, rumble strips on the side of the road, wake us up if we start to fall asleep and are headed for the ditch. They're our friends. And that's a whole new way of seeing things. Yeah, lovely. Is there anything else that you would like to finish on before we end the episode? <laughs> I think we've 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 been together two and a half hours. I hope you still <laughs> like me. <laughs> I, you know, I, I I've, I'm cutting this conversation short, <laughs> as, as I'm sure everybody knows by now. I'm cutting this conversation short because it's already been going for an hour thirty five minutes, um, recorded. Um, so, I mean, as, as, you know, I I would love to have you come back in the future and continue the conversation. It's been an honor and a pleasure to, to listen to you and to share with you and to, to, to share the space with you. Well, and Daniel, I want people to know that to me, I've just made an injection and I, I mean it when I say, you know, I don't expect you or, or want you to believe anything I've said, but I've tried to point to what 38 years of, of being a student has, what insights I've had for me. And if they help you find a, a quieter, more loving, peaceful place to live from uh, where you're creative, productive, and caring, then love and understanding to me is, is in the end. It's always uh, the measure of, am I headed in the right direction? Beautiful. Great place to finish. Thank you so much. Okay. Same to you. And and thank you for 
for the time that even before the recorded session, just to to hear a little bit of your journey and um, and uh, I have deepest respect for what you're doing. So I appreciate that. And I hope through I hope you find a way of uh, gentleness through this very real transition. That you've shared I, I appreciate it. I, I I feel quite comfortable in it, fortunately, um, and I'm sure that I'm going to have my moments of ups and downs. But right. but uh, I'm I'm fortunately quite comfortable with with yeah. with it. So thank it you might very help much. when you when you have those periods of downs to to remember all fair. And all you had to do is to sit quietly and don't do anything. And that's right. The court that's will right. come back. Right. Okay. Beautiful. Peace. Okay. <laughs> bye bye. I will talk to you soon. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thank you for listening. Hopefully you heard something new that invites you to reflect, to go within and deepen your own understanding of life and of our universal experience. If you enjoyed this conversation, please follow the podcast series on your favorite listening app and share this episode with others that you feel would enjoy it as well. Until next time, May we all soar with inspiration, explore with passion, and live with love.